You're listening to DraftKings Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. A week in the books, and the standings are looking just as we expected, huh, boys? The only 4-0 team, Portland. Yeah. Spurs, 3-1. and Saw that coming. Utah, Utah beat Denver. Music to my ears. Minnesota, Pelicans. The funniest meme I've seen so far this season is they put the DJ Khaled suffering from success album cover, and it said, Danny Ainge right now. <laughs> yeah. What does he have to do? Does he have to Tanya Harding, Lori Markinen? What is it going to take to tank for the jazz and the Spurs? I'm reminded of the fact that Michael Carter Williams in his rookie year looked like he was a second coming of magic Johnson for the first three games. He was also like 35, his rookie year. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the Sixers 2014 started out three and zero and ended up with 19 wins. Looking at this situation, I'm like, who is the Michael Carter Williams of this start? I think Lowry's better. I'm going to break it down for you. The three teams that we just mentioned, Portland, San Antonio, and Utah. Portland, their problem is they have an actual superstar, Damian Lillard. He's amazing. You're going to win games. Much as you try not to, you're going to win games, right? Darn it. Utah, their problem is they have too many good players. Not great players, but good players. These are all rotation players. Kelly Olenek and Jordan Clarkson and Colin Sexton, Laurie Market. Like, these are all rotation starting caliber NBA players. And Mike Conley, until you try to get rid of these guys, you're going to get more of this, right? But San Antonio? Yo. I don't even know who these people are. Who are they? Popovich, he deserves coach of the year purely by getting this team 3-1. and Call it now. <laughs> you know what's funny? Michelle Beadle and Vinny Del Negro both separately told me that Pop is having the time of his life. He's loving this space. Oh, like George Bluth in prison? <laughs> <laughs> hey, T-Bone. My assignment. Uncover why the association inspires more conspiracy theories in volume and salience than any other U.S. sport. You've heard of the Illuminati. The truth is out there, but so are lies. Your eyes can deceive you. Don't trust them. The NBA has always been controlled by about eight people. Denial is the most predictable of all human responses. If you're only using 10% of your brain, you don't even know that you're using 10% of your brain. The NBA Illuminati. If coincidences are just coincidences, why do they feel so contrived? The Illuminati. But you start to follow the money, and you don't know where the f*** is going to take you. It is unspoken. They have influence among other players. The NBA Illuminati. I don't have time for your convenient ignorance. Maybe I'm a conspiracist now as well. That's but- all it took. Oh, we got books. We got schools. You saw a video on YouTube. <laughs> Why am I, sir? You've never used them before. We are the basketball Illuminati. <laughs>
Welcome to Basketball Illuminati. I am Tom Haberstroh, and as always, I'm joined by my five-star Illuminarmy generals, the presidents of the Illumination, Amin El Hassan and producer Anthony Mays. Lots of good stuff to get into in this show. We are going to have one of the most interesting truth-tellers we've ever had on this program. His name is Babak Somek. He is a professor at the Baruch College, coming in with an academic paper, a study, which is called Inside the NBA Bubble, How Black Players Perform Better Without Fans. He has two other co-authors, one from Stanford, another from Italy, University of Copenhagen, which studied how players played in the bubble with no fans. Really interesting stuff in there. We're also going to get an inconvenient truth from Amin El Hassan later in the program, but first... Are listening to the agenda with Tom Haberstro and Amin El Hassan. All right, on the agenda, the Nets Ben Simmons thing has been a disaster. I think he's averaging six points a game right now. Boston's doing really well with their new head coach. Portland is off to a four and zero start. Damian Lillard, as you mentioned, Amin is just exploding. He's incredible. But are we allowed to talk about Russell Westbrook? Do we need to get permission from LeBron to talk about Russ? Are you taking us to the Russell Westbrook category? Anthony Davis on Media Day said, no one's really talking about the Lakers. Mm. So I feel like it's our responsibility as leaders in the illumination to talk about the Lakers. Yeah, you know, Anthony Davis, we let you down as a staff record label and a mother-loving crew. Mm. And we're not going to do that anymore. Let's talk about the Lakers right now. No, I know, I know. No one wants to talk about the Lakers. It's a a boring topic. You won't hear it anywhere else, but you'll hear it here. Yes, that's right. We watched the game, the Blazers collapse, and Damian Lillard, Jeremy Grant, what a finish. But, you know, LeBron James was asked after the game um, by ESPN intrepid reporter Dave McMenamin a philosophical question. LeBron basketball philosophy-wise, if you're the team with the lead uh, in the final minute, um, is it do you support going for the two-for-one, or can you be, because you already have the lead, um, be more? Um, selective and sort of taking your time with the possession. I don't know. I feel like this is an interview of trying to set me up to say something. Um, I can tell that you guys are in the whole Russell Westbrook uh, category right now. Um, I don't like to lose. I hate to lose at any. I don't care what happens throughout the course of uh, um, the course of my season or throughout the course of my career. I hate to lose, and you know, especially you know the way we had this game. Um, but give credit to Portland. You guys can write about Russ and all the things you guys want to try to talk about Russ, but I'm not up here to do that. I won't do it. I've said it over and over. Um, and it's not my, it's not who I am. So Well played, McTen. Well played. Like, I'm not asking about what Russ did. I'm just saying philosophically. And you know what LeBron said back? He said, I'm not falling for the banana in the tailpipe. While not realizing that's exactly what he did. He just shoved the banana further up the tailpipe. Because here's the thing, guys. If he did agree with the two-for-one philosophy, he would have just said, yeah, in general, yes, I agree with that. But instead, he's like, oh, no, I'm not not falling for that one. Meaning we know what your answer is. Because the only way it could be a bad look for us is if you said, I don't think you should go two-for-one in those situations. Darvin Ham was asked the same question, by the way. Absolutely. I wish he, I just wish he would have uh, attacked the rim directly. Like, like, teams, that's the one shot that teams want you to take and want to give up. Long twos, contested twos, what have you. And with his ability to explode and get to the basket, um, still being at a high level, I wish he did that, especially with Nurkic standing back there with five fouls. So, um, again, we'll get better from it. We'll watch it on film. And I don't mind a two-for-one at all. Darvin Ham, he managed to answer the question about the philosophical aspect while still being what I thought was constructively critical of Russ. Like, hey, maybe that shot's not the shot we want. Maybe we want something a little better. Do we want to talk about that, by the way? Do we want to talk about the philosophy of the two-for-one when you're up one with under 30 seconds to go? We won't fall for the okey-doke here. We'll just go right into it. When you talk about Russell Westbrook and this shot in particular, you have to understand he is a pariah 
in Lakerland right now. Every time he touches the ball, every time he gets the ball on the perimeter, it is like, oh no, don't shoot, don't know. So when he does this, I think he's trying to bury all of that if he hits that shot. Does he get over the hump and suddenly he's in the good graces of the fans again because he iced the game? Because what Kirk Goldsberry found yeah. in his research is fascinating. <laughs> Maze, do you know the stat he's about to drop on us right here? No, hit me with it. Kirk <laughs> drops this knowledge here. Russell Westbrook has made three of 17 jump shots this season. Also, he is the only player that has attempted a jump shot with under 30 seconds to go and 15 plus seconds left on the shot clock with their team up by one possession in the last four seasons. Four years. Four years. This has not happened. The Democrats didn't even have the majority in the house <laughs> four years ago. My second kid wasn't even born. It's been so long. COVID was two years away. <laughs> it's one thing if it's Steph Curry doing that, but as Kirk points out, He's the worst jump shooter in the NBA. Yeah. And Darvin Ham is right. Like if Russell Westbrook is going to go for the two for one there, just attack the basket, get a higher percentage shot. And he didn't do that. I don't think there's any advantage to going to two for one in that situation strategically. Because here's the deal. Think about it like in football, right? Let's say you score a touchdown and that touchdown puts you up by one point in the game. What are you doing for your extra points? Go for two. Football Illuminati says... Open your third eye. Go for two. You go for two. Why? Because if you make it, you're up three, and now a field goal at best ties, right? Mm -hmm. If you miss it, you're up one. But guess what? If you had kicked the extra point, you would have been up two, and a field goal would have beat you anyway. But, I mean, are you saying that there is some sort of all-time great three-point shooter who hits clutch shots on the other end on this Portland Blazers team? I'm saying that if you hold on to it or drive or whatever, worst-case scenario— you're going to be up one at the end of this. You didn't get fouled or you got fouled. You missed both free throws. You didn't get anything out of it. You're going to be up one with a limited amount of time. Boom. But if you make it, if you get fouled, you get to the free throw line, you can extend that. Taking a jump shot that quickly in the clock, all you've ensured, even if you make that shot, they've got a lot of time to go out there and do what they got to do. I didn't understand it. But the thing is also is he didn't take a three-pointer, which would have put the game out of reach. It would have been a four-point game. Yes. If you want to take a jump shot, do not dribble into a 20-foot two-point shot. You're putting the game to, at most, three points, and you got Damian Lillard on the other end. You're better off letting them have the ball with like eight seconds to go. Yes. With a lot less time on the clock than you are giving them all the time in the world to devise a way to beat you. Well, this is neither here nor there, man. Let's let's get to the nitty gritty. Yeah, this is a lot of basketball on the court analysis. That's not what we do here. We go behind the scenes. We go behind the curtain. Yes. Pull back that curtain. Look, I think what happened here is LeBron James wanted Russell Westbrook. Last year. Once upon a time. Yeah. He wanted the deal done. And once he got the deal done, he realized big mistake. But I can't get out of this. I can't get out of this situation. And so... Genie Bus goes out and gives a four-year extension to Rob Palinka. The only way that Rob Palinka is getting a contract extension with that roster is if Genie Bus knows LeBron made you do it. LeBron wanted Russell Westbrook. Your hands were tied. You made it happen. Now he's got the extension. LeBron's got the extension. And you know what? We're going to stand by you. LeBron's not great at this whole GM thing. That's how I read the situation because you don't get that insecure about any Russell Westbrook question or a philosophical question if you weren't the guy who did it. He's made this bed and now he's got to sleep in it. And the problem is that Russell Westbrook is not only not good right now, he might be the worst player in the NBA right now Damn. based on the fact that he can't create a, an efficient shot. He's not a floor spacer. He's not a defender. That's not a good companion to LeBron James. The team is better off. LeBron's better off. And Russ is better off by just parting ways and going home. Charles Barkley sure thinks so. He took one look at Russ after an off season of being Charles and not paying attention to this type of stuff. And he had this to say. This guy, man, I admire Russell Westbrook. They aren't taking his entire joy out of basketball. And it pisses me off. They took it from him. They stole it. That's rough. Does that jump shot look like they stole his joy? A lot of this is just Russ is doing, you know? Yeah, I mean, you said it yourself. That's a guy who's trying to win back everyone's love. That's why you do that. But that is 
based on the fact that he can't hit a jump shot, right? So he's trying to win back people's love when he doesn't have a jump shot. And yet he is still taking those jump shots. I'm saying it's an ill-advised decision to try to win back the fans with one 20 foot jump shot with 30 seconds left. Oh yeah. I think the Lakers just need to get to the point. LeBron James wants this season to be about him. LeBron James wants this season to be about Kareem. We've talked about it before. He's going to play both sides of this thing where he doesn't want to talk about Kareem's record, but he also wants to say it's the most unbreakable record in the, in the NBA. Yeah. I just think they're headed to a mutual decision to part ways to have Russell Westbrook go home and we'll figure out a trade scenario. Throw some nice, juicy John Wall style quotation marks on that mutual. Mm. Stan Van Gundy, mutual decision to part ways with Stan Van Gundy in New Orleans. Like whenever you see mutual decision, just know that that's probably not true. Great story from Sam Amick in The Athletic, an interview with John Wall, where John Wall was like, yeah, that Houston deal, I wanted to play. That was not mutually agreed upon. And I feel like we're headed down that road. I mean, with Russell Westbrook is that the Lakers don't want to give up that 27 and that 29 pick in exchange for Russell Westbrook's contract. I just don't know how they're going to get any value back. Can you send Russell Westbrook to Utah and get Mike Conley or get Jordan Clarkson or both without putting both of those picks into the deal? I don't think you can. Maybe if the jazz win a couple more games, Danny will (laughs) pull that trigger finger a little early because Lakers are zero three. So clearly. Russ is the key to tanking. Here's some stats for you. Russell Westbrook on the floor. LeBron James is scoring 22 points per 75 possessions. 22. With Russ off the floor, that goes from 22 to 29. Mm. LeBron James's usage rate without Russ on the floor is 36. That would be third in the NBA behind Joel Embiid and John Morant. With Russell Westbrook on the floor, his usage rate goes from 36% of possessions to 25. Yikes. Julius Randle-esque. It's not working with Russ. And at least if you have Russ off the bench or not playing at all, LeBron James could actually be himself again and go for that record. No, no, no. You can't put Russ on the bench. Yeah, that's how he hurt his hamstring, Tom. Don't you remember? Over, I think a thousand plus regular season games as a starter. Yeah. Do you think having to change a routine and stuff like that could have played any role in and feeling something a little different. Absolutely. Uh, I've been doing the same thing for 14 years straight. Uh, Honestly, I didn't even know what to do pregame. You know what, Tom? I think I figured it out. It's probably the fans' fault. Fans? I think Crypto.com Arena should ban fans, and that'll fix Russell Westbrook's jumper. What makes you say that, Maze? I read this paper. Show your work. I didn't do my own research, but I found some research that was done by professors. This is serious <laughs> stuff. Wait a second. Are, are they credentialed by some wackadoo university somewhere that you've never heard of? Credentials are a sensitive subject right now. I mean, we're not going <laughs> to get into that. But yes, these are legit professors. This is serious business. And I think we just need to hear from him himself. Let's bring on Babak Somek, our truth teller this week. Can't wait to hear what Babak says. His paper he co-authored is called Inside the NBA Bubble, How Black Players Perform Better Without Fans. You all think I'm licked. Well, I'm not licked. And I'm going to stay right here and fight for this lost cause, even if this room gets filled with lies like these. And the tailors and all their armies come marching into this place. Somebody will listen to me. There's no better way to overpower a trickle of doubt than with a flood of naked truth. But the complexity in the grave lie not in the truth. But what you do with the truth once you have it. What is true and right is true and right for all. You and I both know that that's just not the truth. You can't handle the truth! It's too messy. Keeps them up nice. I'm here because in the end, the truth is worth the risk. Speak a little truth and people lose their minds. I'm a grown man. You can tell me the truth. Why is it people want the truth never believe it when they hear it? So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do something really outrageous. I'm going to tell the truth. Truth All right. This is a very special truth teller episode. We have someone who's smarter than the three of us, Maze, Amin, and I combined. You're in academia. Not a feat. That's not something that would go home (laughs) touting at the top of your lungs. I'm smarter than the three of them combined. (laughs) Babak Somek 
you've just got back from 15 years abroad. You're back in the United States. You have taken all of your smarts and your intellect and your worldly knowledge and applied it to the NBA. So thank you for lending your IQ and high IQ to our little sport over here. Thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I am a proud member of the Inland Nation. Ah, oh, <laughs> there it is. Yeah. Two weeks in a row, I mean. Maze, we got last week, Fisher was wearing the merch, the hat. Yeah. And Babak, you're sitting here with a third eye wide open. Thank you. I like illumination. It's a more modern term for the followers, the listeners, right? Like Illuminarmy was just a little too aggressive. Illumination, now you, you've got scholars, you have doctors, you have teachers, you have all types of intellectuals. Electricians, you know? Plumbers, yes. Yeah, plumbers, yes, that played in the NBA, apparently. Did Bob Cousy ever shoot over 40% from the field? Well, we understand that. Did You're he right. overshoot, oh, did no, ever shoot over not. 40%? Probably 39, 40%. Different kind not of Not once. I, it's not fair. once. That's fair. He also had 29 assists in an NBA game. Oh, well, you know, he was being guarded by plumbers and firemen. Oh, come on. That is true. That is true. Here is the paper that you have published on the internets that I had a chance to read and have so much interesting questions, or at least I hope they're interesting questions about this. It's called Inside the NBA Bubble, How Black Players Perform Better Without Fans. And you co-authored this paper with two other of your pals. Wow, very interesting stuff. Tom, two other of his pals that he met at Oxford. As I just a drinking buddy is like cracking open a beer. You know what we should do? We should look this up. This is the highest heights of academia here, deciding to tackle a very real and serious subject. The idea is you studied how NBA players performed before the bubble and then after the bubble and came up with some really interesting results. Top line, let's just talk about what you found and then we'll get into how you got there. We were sort of expecting to find something or we thought we might find something because my co-authors had already found something in another league. But what we found was much more significant than we thought. Once we controlled for all the different factors in terms of player performance and team effects and things like that, we found that playing inside the bubble versus the year before, so we compared playoffs over playoffs, the difference between black players and white players in terms of how much they improved or or their performance generally was the black players performed 27% better in the bubble relative to the previous year than white players did. And we found out that to be very significant. We did it by measuring both in terms of game score, which is a measure of overall performance, as well as PER. Using both measures, we found the same significant effect. And it was, it was much more significant and, and large in terms of 27%. It was much larger than we expected. So you're not saying that black players in general are better than white players or better in the bubble. You're just saying they improve their performance at a higher rate than their white counterparts. All we were looking at is the difference between their performance in the playoff in 2019 versus their performance in the playoffs in the bubble in 2020. We looked at all players. Generally, we found that performance was a little bit worse in the bubble. Right. But we found that black players, they performed 27% better than the white players when we looked at the difference in terms of their performance, if that makes sense. I think that was the part I was most confused because the data shows a decrease in game score from the prior playoffs to the bubble playoffs. But the performance of black players showed an improvement. And given that obviously the majority of the population are black players, how do you get an overall decrease if the majority of the players have improved their performance? Yeah, it's a great question. So our our 27% impact is after we control for other factors, Mm -hmm. age of players, other factors that might impact general performance of players that's not to do with the bubble itself. And so if you just look at the raw data, the overall performance in game score may have gone down by just 2%. But this is such a small number in terms of the actual like variation in game score from year to year that that 2% just could be randomness. Mm-hmm. But once we control for the other factors like quality of the players in the league or the quality of other factors, we found this differential. Did you guys differentiate at all in terms of country of origin? Meaning does Giannis count the same as 
LeBron James as quote unquote a black player? Yeah, absolutely. So we got some pushback when we started talking about this idea with people. And one of the pushbacks was, well, maybe this is a homesickness effect. Like people are in a bubble and maybe white players were affected more by homesickness. So because of that, we we try to control for that by adding in country of origin. Mm -hmm. And we tried to see if it was a differential of impact by foreign born players versus American players. So Giannis would have been included as a black player in the data, but then would have been pulled out as a foreign player by this additional control that we added. And it didn't impact our results. This is a pretty big headline, right? Is that there is a racial difference between the performance of players based on the fans, based on whether there are, as you note in your paper, that predominantly white fans in the audience with a predominantly black player pool, this is got implications across sports, across workplaces, across societies. So how did you get into this paper? Like, how did you come up with the idea to study the impact on a basketball court? In terms of the impact, it's consequential for any sort of labor situation. Anytime people are working in a, in an office, if this is a factor that impacts performance because of the sense of feeling discriminated against, or, you know, I think this could be a labor type paper, but anyway, that's partially how we got to it because my co-author Paolo Falco and Mauro, who have written papers together, Mauro Caselli, the two of them do a lot of work on labor, while my research has been generally about inequality and finance. The two of them had looked at this from the perspective of a labor economist, and they're also big soccer fans and they're Italian from Naples. They had some sort of general observations about what was going on in the Italian soccer league during the 2020 season. And they decided to do a research into it. And they found a significant difference between African born players and Italian or European born players with fans versus without fans. So they basically did the same type of analysis, but the Italian soccer league. And I was visiting them last summer before I was moving out of Europe. And we started talking about this. And for me, it was like, oh, my God, this is such an amazing idea to take advantage of the bubble or, or a fans without fans to look at a very important question. And I thought for me, the NBA was the number one choice to look at this because, like you said, it's a very special type of league. And my co-authors pushed back. They're like, what do you mean the NBA is mostly black players? So why would this exist if... They're generally surrounded by other black teammates. But I was like, well, racism, in my perception, that would even make it worse because your predominantly black player is performing for a predominantly white audience. And then obviously I've been aware of what happened with Donald Sterling, what we saw recently with Robert Sarver in Phoenix. And I had heard about, about what happened to Trey Young and and some of the other instances. But then once we started looking into other instances, I mean, there's so many cases of definitely overt racism when people call mm -hmm. players boy from the stands, like, and also what could be seen as racist behavior. And so the NBA just seemed like a perfect experiment. And on top of that, the NBA is a sport where the fans are right on top of the players. Yeah, they can reach out and touch the players. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And in soccer, there's a big separation and there's a lot of security. I mean, the next sport I would like to look at would be potentially the NFL, because that would be a sport where there's a lot of reasons maybe, obviously the racism still exists and maybe it's even more strong, but the skill set or the mentality for NFL is different from basketball. So it would be interesting to see if the effects. One of the things I found very interesting in the paper was the idea that among black players, the group that was most impacted by this was actually the stars. The stars experienced the biggest gap between outside the bubble and inside the bubble. First of all, how surprised were you to find that? And then when uh, your co-authors did their study in Italian soccer, was that similarly observed where the star players were more impacted than regular or role players? That's a great question. To answer your second one, to be honest, I'm not sure. I don't think they did because I don't remember it, but I'm not 100% sure that they found the same thing. But we were very surprised. It made us even more confident in the results we were seeing. So we found the effect when we separated players into the top 50% by game score and lower 50% by game score. We also used the previous year's measures of them, used their income. So we had different ways of trying to categorize players by being top versus bottom. Mm -hmm. When we separated them into two groups, we found the effect was stronger for the top group. And that was really surprising for many reasons. One is that it goes completely against, again, one of the other narratives that we haven't included in our paper 
paper because narrative itself, I think it comes off as being racist, but this idea of the choking effect is that, and this is sort of in the literature as well, which is people are performing differently under pressure. We check this in many ways, but this result confirmed our view that it's not a factor here is that a lot of literature shows that top players tends to be the ones who are not impacted by the pressure. And so the fact that the top players effect was even stronger than overall suggested this was something beyond just the pressure of the game. The other thing that I found interesting was looking at page 12 here, the performance of black players inside the bubble improves the most when they play against teams from the Northeast and the South <laughs> of the United States, where racist attitudes are most prevalent, according to a paper that you cited from 2015, and where anecdotal evidence suggests that episodes of abuse in NBA games have been more prominent. Whoa! There's a lot of people in Boston saying, what? That's not true at all. As a Northeasterner myself, I'm getting a little like defensive. Wait, wait, yeah, there's got to be something wrong with the data there. <laughs> no. I'm a Knicks fan and, and I'm a New Yorker as well. <laughs> and this definitely went against my impression of what I would have thought, except that a lot of the anecdotal evidence that we cite are from Boston, as well as New York. Mm -hmm. That paper that we quote is, I believe, a Pew Research survey. And so it's based on a survey of the population and they found a sentiments tended to be racist sentiments were stronger in the Northeast and in the South. The paper used large-scale data from Google searches to rank U.S. states by prevalence of racist attitudes. First of all, I didn't even know that that study existed, much less that it's been peer-reviewed and verified and now using as a bedrock for further study. So let me get this right. So players who play in Philly, New York, Boston perform better, black players perform better in the bubble than expected based on where they are playing from, like where their team originate? We compared away games and home games. So basically what we found is that games that took place in Boston, and if you played in that game, so whether you were a home player or away, right. your performance in the bubble was relatively improved even more. Wow. Okay. As I'm reading it, it all makes sense that you did all these controls and you add some variables into the stew and it comes back out that yes, this effect is still there. Have you gotten any pushback like beyond the stuff you've already mentioned, but other ideas of why it might explain what might explain this, this impact? We looked at different mechanisms. Some of them we've included in the paper. This sort of pressure of the game thing is something we've included different controls for. So we looked at performance in the regular season in 2019 versus performance in the regular season in 2018 before the bubble. So maybe like this was just a 2019 to 2020 type of effect and it wasn't anything to do with the bubble itself. And we found no difference between white and black player performance. So this was sort of a placebo effect. Like when you just look at the regular season, there was no differential because the regular season was still played in front of fans up until March when everything shut down. One thing we heard is maybe referee bias is a factor. So this is actually how you and I, Tom, got into contact was I was looking for referee data. We ended up finding the referee data, included it, and we found that controlling for who's refereeing which game didn't impact our results. So it's not that referee bias because there's a lot of, there's some research, sorry, not a lot, but there's some research that shows that referees have some bias in their refereeing. There's one paper that shows there's own race bias amongst referees. And there's another paper that shows referees generally call fouls at a greater rate on black players. These are somewhat dated papers. So we just decided to check for that. We looked to see if age, if the distribution of age of players in that year. So if players are generally older in 2020, maybe their performance will be different. Or maybe if black players are generally younger, we found no effect. We controlled for positions. One of the interesting things was actually from something you've written in the past, Tom, which is about the tinderization of the NBA. Some people said, well, if the players are in the bubble, then they don't have the chance to be distracted by what's going on outside of the bubble. It's just basically white people are lamer than black people is what it is, <laughs> comes down to. Duncan Robinson wasn't swiping much. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I just want to sit back in our hotel room and play video games, no matter what city I'm in. Yeah, except I, I believe Lou Williams made his way out some point yeah that's right <laughs> yeah. yeah what were the effects of chicken wings on players in the bubble did you control for that no we did not that's good <laughs> i mean it is interesting is the idea of like okay what's different about the environment the bubble isn't just about no fans it's about no social life no family 
also the stress of just the pandemic itself. Black Lives Matter was on the court. There was a whole cultural revolution happening in America during the same time. So how did you approach that aspect of Black Lives Matter and all of that was baked into this bubble as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'll leave the Black Lives Matter second, but first we did try to address the homesickness part, like I said, mentioned earlier. We couldn't do much more than that. In terms of this idea of distractions not existing in the bubble, we couldn't control for that, but we could go and check based on previous years to see if this tinderization effect was different between black and white players, and we didn't find it. So we went back and looked at 2019 and compared away versus home performances by players and tried to see if there was any differential by black players versus white, and we found no difference. We then thought that if that's the case, uh, then there's no reason to believe if that is an effect, it would be an effect that would affect all players. It wouldn't necessarily cause the differential that we're seeing. Mm -hmm. But the Black Lives Matter is definitely an issue. And I would argue that what was going on outside of the bubble was more important than maybe what they wrote on the courts and things like that, because there's two ways it could have affected it. I guess one, it could have been a distraction, like we saw with the Milwaukee Bucks leaving the court after uh, what happened in Wisconsin. And that happened sort of at the end of August, which was right in the middle of the whole bubble experience. You could see that as a distraction in some way that could hurt black player performance, but you could also see it potentially as empowering because black players might feel empowered by the strong, powerful movement that's going on in the country. But then I I don't know how that would necessarily make them perform better in the bubble, but it's possible. So those are the two competing uh, narratives that we couldn't couldn't really go for. How could you guys have done this study without the assistance of the bubble? Or is it even possible to have done a study of this nature without having that drastic of a a circumstance to control for the variable of fan versus no fan. So one other approach we could have thought about, but it's a bit more tricky, is to look at the following season, which was the 2020-2021 season, mm-hmm. where for half the season, uh, everyone was in their state arenas, but for half the season, there were no fans. Yep. And then fans were sort of loosely back in. But we would still have somewhat of an issue there because it's hard to compare within a regular season to itself. Because as you guys know, the NBA season goes through various ups and downs and different reasons why players might not play as hard. And then comparing the playoffs versus the regular season wouldn't necessarily be good. So the only approach using the 2020-2021 season would be to split it into like before and after fans were allowed and then compare. But then we would still have that problem of why would their performance be the same before and after? It might not be for other reasons. Another idea would be to potentially just add in uh, audience numbers, like attendance numbers. And we actually control for attendance in our paper. Mm. And still our results of bubble versus non-bubble still comes out. But yeah, to be honest, I think this is as good as it might get in terms of trying to answer this type of question. I was just saying that we had Jake Fisher last week, but he wasn't last week. He was two weeks ago. Last week was Ian Begley, and we asked him, the Knicks reporter, about how the Knicks were basically using AI technology to screen and use facial recognition technology to analyze who's coming into the arena, which I'm guessing, Babak, you would love to get your hands on that data for this paper, (laughs) seeing what is the racial makeup of the people in your arena, and then use that information to strengthen the powers of your analysis. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you're talking to to James Dolan right now to get your hands on that data. (laughs) Yeah. I wonder if he would be willing to share his data. The only data we could find was on racial makeup of fans generally, which is obviously very different from fans who show up in their arena. Right. But yeah, that would be very, very helpful data. The ideal scenario would be a situation where we could have some measure of racist behavior Mm. and, you know, and then look at performance. So you're looking for a scanner of some kind that could gauge people's racism just on a graph. That'd be helpful. If you could make that, it would be a tremendous device that I think people would use all the time. Yeah. Babak, let me ask you something you mentioned earlier wanting to see you were curious to see what would happen if you applied this sort of study to football i don't know if you've heard but football illuminati is coming soon so <laughs> what would your preliminary gut guess based on what you've learned from this nba study and what you think you know about football what do you think your findings would be 
for that sport. I must admit, I've thought about this. It might sound really naive and not very thought through, but there's a couple of competing factors. In football, you probably need more aggression and anger. And I try to understand like how I would feel because I have sometimes faced discrimination for my religion and from where I'm from. And I wonder if that would make me be angry. Usually when I played American football in, in high school, when I was angry, I played better. And when I didn't think I played better. And so I wonder if that would compete with the other side of football, which I think requires a huge amount of understanding of a very complicated system of plays, which would require you to be very much on the ball in that sense. So I'm not clear. It almost feels like it, it might have the opposite effect, right? That the presence of this tension from the stands actually sharpens the resolve of the football player and, and makes them play harder because there is kind of stakes on the line or what have you whereas where basketball the aggression levels are lower it just manifests itself as a stress that takes away from performance what do you think tom i was thinking as you're talking i mean also the mask and you're not as transparent yep. to the audience so like you're almost kind of shielding your identity more than an nba player who you see in the flesh like you see them you can see their facial reactions so you can't hide whereas in football you're literally masked so maybe you're not feeling as on the spot as the nba counterparts and i wonder this is, might seem like a crazy question can teams utilize this information this study to make their team better somehow if we know this effect is real or if we see this impact, like, is there a way we can not hack this, but use this to a rid of racism in their arenas, but also help players perform better based on that information? I know this is something that goes across all of society, the import of this study, but I wonder if there's a way that if a coach read this they, or a GM or an owner read this and said like, oh, we should do something about this. Absolutely. I believe it was, I mean, I listen to you guys regularly and I think you guys are recently talking about how once it hits the money, then we see action when it starts hitting the bottom line. But our paper says that it's hitting the bottom line, mm. it's hitting the bottom line in a really serious way. 27% is a significant performance differential, particularly if it's amongst the top players. But then the, the flip side of that is it seems like such a difficult topic to try and deal with because it's pervasive in our society. It's something that even if they somehow manage to remove it from the arena or within the practice or the, the institutions themselves, once the players step outside of the arenas, they are still faced by that. And this is partially this argument that Maybe like the fan that poured popcorn on Russell's head after he was hurt and walking off the thing, maybe that fan wasn't doing it out of racism. Maybe that fan was doing it out of just, I hate Russell Westbrook. But then, you know, you can't deny the possibility, and clearly our data suggests this, that Russell Westbrook himself would see that. And what he says afterwards when he talks about that incident suggests that he sees that as a racist attack. So it suggests that how the players feel isn't necessarily just about what the fans are doing, although the fans are clearly, at least some of the time, doing it out of racist. And we see that by what they're saying and who they're targeting, but just also there's this latent effect that comes just from being more sensitive to that type of behavior. So you mentioned earlier that you're trying to get this paper published in an academic journal. What are the steps? What more do you need to do in order to strengthen this argument, in order for it to be published? Or does it need to be strengthened? Is it just a matter of opinion at some point of the editors of the journal? It's a lot about matter of opinion. Paulo and Mara are more successful publications than I, but all three of us have publications. Are there publication stats like that Mauro is, <laughs> he's the LeBron of getting his papers? <laughs> Leading the league and. He's definitely not the LeBron, but he's the LeBron of us. <laughs> I'm more focused on teaching now. I do some research. I had a publication last year, but they're a lot more active in terms of academic research. So we did this submission to this top journal already because we wanted to get feedback to see what the referees say we would need to do. And the referees are like the judges of these papers? Exactly. So these are other academics who... I'm just imagining Scott Foster like reading your paper yeah. and saying, yeah. <laughs> No good. <laughs> These are sort of very successful, high top of their field academics whose job it is to read our papers blindly without knowing who we are. And then they decide if they think the paper is good or not. But obviously their own subjective view of the paper is going to impact it, whether or not they've seen it. 
So that's why we put it out on Twitter. We're trying to get it pushed out there. If you guys could tweet it out, that would be great. But they are also ultimately, they're interested in the strengths of the paper, how well we do a good job in showing what we're arguing is the factors and how well we can connect those things. The referees will then decide based on reading the paper if they like it or not, if they think it could be publishable, if they think it's publishable at their journal. So we're starting at the very top of the journals now. They will then probably give us some feedback and say, you need to fix this, this and that. And then eventually you get published. If they don't think it's publishable, they'll say, "Okay, we don't think it's publishable because you need to do this, this and that. So either we're going to get some sort of feedback about what they think we need to do to strengthen the paper. And we won't know until then, but we have some things that we have in our back pocket that we're keeping in but we didn't put in the paper in case they ask for it. Ooh, some new research up your sleeve that you're waiting to bust out. Can we get a preview or just a taste? It's much more boring than that. It's controls. Oh, you didn't control for this thing and you're like, oh yeah, well, bam. Yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. From inception to publication, how long was that process for you? This was actually an amazingly fast because uh, the three of us worked really well together. We found this paper to be very compelling. I'm a huge NBA nerd. I also listen to every one of the spinoffs of the Hoop Collective, <laughs> including Big Waz on the weekend. Hey, for the listeners who are wondering, yes, we created that. I don't know if people even remember that, but yes, we invented that. So last summer I was with them and they brought up this paper that they did on the soccer league. And I was like, we have to do the NBA. I want to be involved. Please, please, please. And my dream was to get this paper retweeted by LeBron, which doesn't look like. Well, (laughs) we still got time. At least you said retweeted and not read by LeBron. He'd read the first page. (laughs) He'd read the first page. Give a nice (laughs) thumbs up. Do you think LeBron would want? this paper? I mean, would a player like LeBron find this paper to be something that he doesn't like to see? Like, I don't know. I think it's competing interest for him. On the one hand, it'd be nice to say, yeah, see, look what we have to put up with, particularly on this high-end level of performers. We put up with it more than anyone. On the other hand, he probably wouldn't be thrilled to have yet another thing for people to say, see, their championship was won because... They didn't have to deal with racism like Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant. Yeah, that's a great point. The quote from LeBron was amazing because it captured exactly what we were talking about, talking about how he hears it and he just puts it aside and tries to go on. But our data suggests that it, it still impacts him. I just want to finish answering Amin's question about how long it took. From last summer, after I said, we have to do this, we didn't really do anything about it until this summer when Mara was here with his wife and daughter staying with us. And we downloaded all the data then. And then in mid-August, after we had done some analysis and Mara had found that this is real and it's there, we brought in Paolo in mid-August and within a month we had written a paper, which is, oh. is a really, really fast process for something like this. And we were very, very happy with how it's turned out. Did you ever think that this fandom of True Hoop TV and True Hoop podcast and the Hoop Collective, whatever parlay yourself onto the podcast? Never. I never thought. I mean... To be honest, like the whole coming back to the U.S. is in some ways happening in a way that I didn't necessarily perceive it happening. To get a job at Baruch, which is part of the CUNY system, and I get to teach amazing students. They're like half of my students are the first in their families to go to university. And I get to do it in my hometown in New York. And then to like write this paper with two of my closest friends about a topic I really in so many ways finds important. And then to that results to me sitting here and talking to you guys, I mean, it's all really unbelievable. So I'm very, very appreciative of that. Well, listen, as you know, being a member of the Illumination, the world works in mysterious ways. Sometimes we can't see it at first, how it's all happening and the alchemy of happenstance. It's not happenstance. Tom, it's happening right in front of everybody's nose. It's right there. Nobody picked up. Like, that's the craziest thing about this is exactly what basketball Illuminati is about. This is about uncovering things that we're all looking at. It's not like this was hidden. It was right in front of our eyes. We have all these instances, high profile instances. And yet you bring out a title like this. And for some people, it's shocking. But the reality is the truth is never shocking. It's just Exactly what it is. Inside the NBA bubble, how black players perform better without fans. Thank you again to Babak Somak for joining us and educating us and making us smarter.
Thank you for having me, guys. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you for enlightening us. Illuminating us. That's right. At B-A-B-A-K-S-O-M-E-K-H. I don't know if you wanted me to shout out your Twitter, but there it is. If you want to follow him and read more of this work, super fascinating. Thanks so much for joining us. It takes time to connect the dots. I know that. But also, I know that there could be a day of reckoning when you wish you connected the dots. More quick. More quick. What were we thinking? Why don't we wake up when we had a chance? Move it! Demolish it! Blow it up! What gets us into trouble is not what we don't know. It's what we know for sure. That just ain't so. so. A man's a divinity truth. Communicate this real clearly. The only way I do is... City by city, person by person, family by family. There are a lot of people go straight from denial to despair. Without pausing on the intermediate step of actually doing something about the problem. Problem. A man's a divinity truth. All right, boys, I don't know if you saw the news over the weekend. Adam Silver addressed employees at the Phoenix Suns at a town hall meeting, and someone rose the question to him, unrelated to anything that happened to them in Phoenix, about how to get rid of tanking, because obviously Victor Wembenyama is the story of the season for all the bad teams, and everyone's kind of lining their ducks in a row to be able to get a chance to draft Victor Wembenyama. As a result, Commissioner Silver said that basically this was going to be something that would be addressed by the league. He kind of hinted at maybe even thinking about something like relegation. Well, Monday he goes on NBA Today on ESPN, and he kind of backtracks a little bit. He says, I can't say I was deadly serious about relegation because we don't have the same system as European soccer, and it would make no sense to send an NBA team to the G League or G League team to the NBA. But obviously that is how other leagues deal with situations like this, where they force teams to stay competitive because of the consequences of finishing at the bottom of the league are dramatically detrimental to the health of the team. Adam, Adam, Adam. First of all, if you want to do relegation in the NBA, and this isn't even the point of my rant, ladies and gentlemen, you don't do it NBA team to G League or G League promoted up to the NBA. That doesn't make sense. You know why? Because most of those teams are owned slash operated by NBA clubs. In other words, imagine if the Lakers, who are winless as of this recording, were relegated down and the South Bay Lakers were promoted. What do you think is going to happen? They're just going to call up LeBron James from Los Angeles to South Bay. So it doesn't make sense, right? There's all sorts of logistical financial dynamics that just don't make sense for you to do it that way. Keep in mind, boys, what if you took the existing NBA and you split it in two? That's right. NBA Division I, NBA Division II. NBA Division II is the bottom 10 teams in the league. You don't get the choice TV spots. You don't get the choice scheduling. You get the crap. And you got to play and fight your way to the top of that league in order to jump up. And the teams at the bottom of Division One, they get relegated down. That's when you, you lose in the play-in tournament or you don't even make the play-in tournament. That's how you do it. But guys, I don't want to talk about relegation as a way to fix this. That's just too much work, too much money on the line. No one's going to say yes to that. I'm into answers that people are going to say yes to. Are you guys ready to say yes? Yes. Yeah. I said, are you guys ready to say yes? Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. This is what you do. Thank you, Howard Dean. Didn't see you walk in there. Yeah. <laughs> Tom, when's the trade deadline typically? That's in late February. Late February. Maze, when typically is the cutoff for guys who got bought out to be eligible for playoff rosters? March 1st. So this is what you do. Starting on March 1st, whenever that date is, we start tabulating wins. The team who is not a playoff team who accrues the most wins from March 1st to the end of the regular season gets the most ping pong balls or the 14% or whatever you want to call it. And the team that was garbage in that stage, they get the smallest odds of getting a top three pick. That's how you do this thing. Tom, you're an economist, right? Yes. What do we talk about economics? We talk about incentives, right? You want behavior, you incentivize that behavior, and people and organizations will act accordingly to the incentives structure in place, right? Yeah. You get what you incent, as they say. In basketball, 
the incentive is to have a star player. Star players equals the best chance of building a stable, consistently good franchise. That's right. So how do I get a star player? You can get one in the draft. You can get one in free agency and you can trade for one. If you trade for a star player, you got to deal with the team that already has them what they want, right? I got to give up a whole lot of stuff and they've got to want to give it to me. They might have other trade partners out there that they either get more from or just feel more comfortable dealing with. It's the Carmelo Anthony problem. Like if you're going to trade for Carmelo Anthony, the Knicks are going to have to give up all their good players. Right. Option two is to sign them. But again, this is a scenario where you need buy-in from the star. The star has any number of suitors that they're listening to pitches from, and you have to be able to outbid or overcome all these other suitors. Also, by the way, you have to have the financial flexibility to make it happen. So that leaves us with the draft. It's the only mostly unilateral way of acquiring talent. I don't have to get buy-in for the most part. Sometimes you get some guys say, I don't want to go there. But for the most part, I draft you, you're mine. That's it. All I have to do is be in a position to pick you while you're on the board. But we just talked about star players. Everybody wants them. Star players at the top of the board. So the incentive is to get a star player. And the incentive is, well, if you want to cut through a lot of red tape, do it through the draft. At the top of the draft. Well, how do you get to the top of the draft? By losing. In essence, if you boil it down, we are incentivizing teams to be bad in order to get the players that will change their franchises. So all we have to do is change that incentive structure so that they're not incentivized to be bad. They're incentivized to be the best versions of themselves. Now, the reason why we want the good players to go there is because we want a league where every team has a chance to win. So I'm not saying give the NBA champ the number one pick. I'm saying let's take those teams that are the worst in the league, but give them an incentive for past March through the end of April to play like they actually mean it and not to sell out and not to find mystery diseases to give their players. Oh, he's got schistophysiasis. That's the worst. I had that in third grade. Awful. You got it and you got it hard, right? Still haven't recovered. Let's get away from that. Let's incentivize them to try to be the best versions of themselves. And by doing that, but again, giving the reward in the form of just the most ping pong balls, the most chances, rather than a carte blanche, well, here's the number one pick. Now you've got something that's going to reward teams to be competitive even after their seasons are quote-unquote over. My name's Amino Hassan, and that's The Inconvenient Truth. point there's gonna have to be multiple football illuminati shows fellas why we can't just have one we've got so much material did you see what happened with mike evans the other day you mean when he didn't sign an autograph (laughs) yeah he obviously did except the nfl says he didn't no he didn't they said he didn't i trust them here in charlotte by the way just weird things happen in charlotte all the time just down the road it's the bermuda triangle of the illuminati mike evans is walking through the tunnel And the Carolina Panthers beat writer is just filming players coming out of the tunnel. And oh my goodness, look at this. The officials, they're walking off with the players. And Mike Evans just la-di-da, walking through the tunnel. La-di-da. Is flagged by a ref. They threw the flag. No, they flagged him down and said, hey, Mikey, Mikey, can you come over here and sign this? Like a couple of highway cops. And two officials go up to Mike Evans and Mike Evans looks down. He grabs a little pen or something that the official gives him and he signs something. We don't know what. Well, I mean, if it's highway cops, it's not an admission of guilt. That's true. It's just acknowledging you received it. Yeah. And then you spend the night in jail. Now, Tom, so I'm watching the video right now. Yeah. He's signing something. Are you telling me the NFL saying that this is not an autograph? (laughs) This is what the NFL put out a statement on Tuesday, sending it to footballzebras.com, which is a site that covers the NFL officials. After speaking with the individuals involved, 
We have confirmed that the post-game interaction between Jeff Lamberth, Trip Sutter, and Mike Evans did not involve a request by the game officials for an autograph. This is really interesting wording here. Did not involve a request by the game officials for an autograph. Next statement. Both Lamberth and Sutter have been reminded of the importance of avoiding even the appearance of impropriety when interacting with players, coaches, and club staff on game day, including during the pregame and postgame time periods. There is a statement right here that it says nothing to see here. Just the appearance of impropriety, okay? If you keep your third eye open, though, no telling what you're going to see. Football Illuminati coming soon.